Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Gary Foster is the director for the Center for Obesity Research and Education and also a professor of medicine and public health at Temple University. Dr. Foster, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. In so many ways, it seems so paradoxical that in our society, which has such a focus on how we physically look and mostly towards being thin, that we should also have such an epidemic of obesity. The question that rings over and over is if this epidemic is more a matter of lifestyle or is it a medical problem? Is that a fair assumption, a fair place to start? I think it is. I think it's certainly a medical problem. I don't think there's any debate about that. I think the question comes is where, what's the source of that medical problem? Is it the behavioral changes that have happened over the last 30 years in terms of our environment? Or are there some biological underpinnings that lead to the increased rates of obesity we see? And I guess there's two answers to that. One is that if you look at any person or group of people in one point in time, about 50% of the variability in body weight will be due to biological factors or genetic factors, and about 50% will be due to the environment. However, when you look at changes, like the dramatic changes we've seen in this country and across most of the globe over the last 30 years, that's almost entirely accounted for by environmental changes because our genes have not changed. So we had a certain set of genes 30 years ago, and in that environment, some people got overweight and obese, many did not. Now, in this environment, those same genes interact in such a way that obesity now affects about third, a third of the country, and those who are at least overweight is about two-thirds. So two-thirds of the people are overweight. That's the better part of our population. Right. So if you look at, so if you think about it this way, 35% of the country is neither overweight or obese. But if you look at the cutoff of overweight, 65% hit that criteria. 33% hit the criteria of a BMI of 30 for obesity. And to your point, the fastest growing segment of the obese population are those who have a BMI of 40, roughly 100 pounds overweight. Would you be so kind as to explain to people who don't know what a BMI is, what a BMI is, please? Sure. A BMI stands for body mass index, and it's the way that obesity is defined. And what it is technically is a weight-adjusted measure of height. So you take somebody's weight, divide it by height, and you send it through this formula. It's available at any website. And what those numbers mean is a BMI of 25, this is for adults, is overweight. 30 is obese. And then there are three classes of obesity. Class 1 is a BMI of 30, class 2, 35, and class 3, or severe obesity, is a BMI of 40. Is the problem pretty much across all age and gender groups? Yes, let me say that a different way. Certainly, there are no age and gender and ethnicity groups that are spared, but some are disproportionately affected, particularly African-Americans and Latinos, and particularly African-American females tend to have the highest rates of obesity. Do we understand why? We don't. We and others have done some work, especially in African-American women, that at the same body weight and body composition as European-American women, that they have a lower energy expenditure. So that gives us a certain clue. But I think the current thinking, uh, along with my own, is that it's probably more environmental and cultural and also economic. So in, in some of these data sets, it's pretty difficult to separate out ethnicity from socioeconomic status. And we know that the poorer you are, the more likely you are to be obese. And if there's a disproportionate number of ethnic minorities who are poor, sometimes that relationship can get, get to be a bit muddy. So in simple terms, then, if people have access to better food more or healthier food, that, is, that seems to reduce the risk for obesity? Or am I taking that too far? 
I think it's a little too far. I, I think we know that socioeconomic status, which is income and education, seems to be protective against obesity. Does that mean it doesn't exist? No, it just exists at lower rates. So why that is, it could be people have access to better foods. It may be that people are more educated. It may be that they're more educated and have the income to buy healthier food. So it could be a different social pressure if you're wealthy than if you're poor. Being overweight means different things in different communities. If you're in a poor neighborhood, it might be indicative that if you're overweight, that you have enough money that you could actually feed you and your family extremely well, where in upper social strata, being obese or overweight would be viewed negatively. Very interesting. So let's talk about what can be done about it. What's the research indicating? Is it more exercise, better diet, or is, is it going to be a, a medication that seems to help people? Well, I think everybody's working on everything at this point. So there are a variety of different approaches ranging from behavior modification strategies that get people at the end of the day to eat less and move more. And then the next step up on the ladder would be pharmacotherapies. There are two medications that are approved by the FDA for long-term use, and there are about three that will be submitted to the FDA shortly. So there are some medications in the pipeline. And then the most extreme but most effective treatment for adult obesity is bariatric surgery. So at the end of the day, all of those techniques try to get people to eat less and move more, which sounds so easy and so simple. It's just not in this environment. And, and it's also difficult because of the the fundamental reinforcement paradigms for eating high-fat, high-sugar, high-calorie food. Meaning that it's so satisfying? Exactly. So at the moment that you have your favorite bit of ice cream or cookie or whatever your favorite decadent food is, let's say, the moment that that's on your tongue, there's not much that I could say or do from a reinforcement point of view that would make that not a good value proposition for someone. Similarly, when we want people to be active, what's more reinforcing than rolling over at 6.30 in the morning and hitting the snooze button? So really what it means is we have to get people to think through the whole process differently. And instead of working on the reinforcement side, many techniques now work at the antecedent side. So what are the things, what are the triggers and cues that set you up to overeat? or to be sedentary. And those are the things that most treatment approaches try to target. I know there has been a lot of talk about how people eat a very nice dinner, and then what do they do? They go sit down and watch television. They really don't burn it off at all. And that speaks to the sedentary lifestyle, which seems to be um, growing and growing as well. It is. Uh, sedentary behavior or screen time specifically is probably the single best predictor of childhood obesity. And it certainly adds negatively or in an in a unfavorable way to the energy balance equation. There, there's no data to suggest, and the fundamental energy aspects of this are pretty simple. It, it doesn't, so, so let me go back to your example of, of watching TV after eating. Certainly it would be better to be moving than watching TV no matter what time of day. So you don't have to worry about exactly timing when you eat, when you exercise, and all those kind of things. It's really how much energy goes into your body in a given day, week, month, year, decade, and how much energy is expended. So it's really that simple. And there's lots of behavioral reasons you would want to spread that out through the day. But whether you eat at 10 o'clock at night or 10 o'clock in the morning, really doesn't make a difference metabolically. What makes a difference is the total number of calories. So it sounds like an economic formula in many ways, energy in, energy out. Exactly right. We, we use the analogy with patients frequently. It's like managing your finances. So what are your expenditures? What are your income? And they have to balance. And you can have some shortfalls in, the, in, in acute times or some windfalls in acute times. 
but essentially you've got to keep the books balanced or either you're going to go into debt or you're going to store fat and gain weight. I worked with a dietitian a couple years ago who gave me a very interesting phrase. She said that she's got to teach people to change their patterns towards food, their relationship with food, not to help them just lose a certain number of pounds. I think that's right. I, I think sometimes obesity can be over-psychologized if people are feeding the hungry heart and, and phrases like that. But I, I think that what's valuable about phrasing this as a relationship is you really do have to turn things upside down. You, you can't think about managing your weight as I'm going to, for the next three, four, five, six months, going to act dramatically different. And I'm sort of, it's going to be a sprint. And once I get to the finish line, I can go back to the way I used to eat. Because when you do, your weight goes back to the weight it used to be. So I think viewing this as a relationship, what are the, the pressure points, if you will? What are the situations on which, under which you reliably overeat? are inactive is a nice way, nice model to think about it. I've noticed also in the news recently, I think it was Pepsi-Cola, but I'm not quite sure which one, but one of the major soft drinks was saying that they're going to stop pushing sugary drinks into the schools. And I think that goes into the patterns that we let kids fall into. Any thought about that? Yeah, I think that's a good move on on the part of the, the American Beverage Association has been doing this, I guess, for three or four years now in conjunction with the Clinton Alliance and some others. And I think it's a move in the right direction because to your point, what we want to do is to change kids' preferences. And it, it turns out they start very early, even intrauterine. So uh, we need to start talking to pregnant moms about what they're eating. And certainly the school day, you know, six, seven, eight hours a day where some kids have twice or two, two meals or two-thirds of their daily intake in school is a place where we can make a difference, not only in what they eat, but what they drink. I also notice, and I'm again talking about a personal example, but when I do a lot of traveling, sometimes it is so much easier when I'm hungry just to go into a fast food restaurant. It's certainly a lot less expensive, and I'm, I'm in and out, and I know I've taken in more calories than I need. Yeah, that's what uh, people have referred to as the obesogenic environment. You know, Probably 20 years ago when you were traveling, it wasn't as easy to access food or as much of it or of different varieties. And now we can go into gas stations and load up, in addition to getting you know, 15, 20 gallons of gas, you can get probably for a buck or two, you can get four or five, 600 calories. So it's really a, a tough environment for our patients to negotiate. What about all the advertisements that all of us see on television of all these diet plans? And do they work? Are they, do they have the success that they portray in, in their ads? I would say generally not. Most of the ads that, that portray people losing 100 pounds or 80 pounds, and you know, as they are obliged to do in their ads, they say results not typical. The, the short answer to this is every diet works if it gets you to eat less than you were eating yesterday or last week or last year. I think the thing that is challenging for those commercial providers, as well as the field overall, is the long-term maintenance of weight loss. That's the thing that the field has not done very well with. So let's go into the long-term problems of being obese. Clearly, we hear about an incredible rise of diabetes in our society. It's, it's, it's frightening. Yeah, it is frightening. Diabetes is probably the one that's most closely linked to obesity, and it gets the attention of policymakers just because it's such a significant condition, but also because it's so costly. So when you think from a healthcare point of view of the dollars that will be spent on treating people with diabetes, it's just staggering. And what's even more staggering is that the age of onset of adult diabetes is now being, or type 2 diabetes is now being seen 
in 14, 15-year-olds. That's incredible. What that means is instead of getting, let's say we pick a more moderate case, instead of getting diabetes in your 50s or 60s, you get it in your 20s or 30s. Well, generally about 15 years after the onset of diabetes, you get the onset of some complications, which could be renal, which could be cardiac, could be a lot. And those conditions are expensive to treat. So it doesn't bode well for the economics. So it's a serious medical issue for sure, diabetes and that link to obesity. But I think what people haven't fully appreciated is what's that going to do to healthcare costs. Okay. So let's assume for the moment that a well-caring, well-intended parent's beginning to see that their teenager is putting on weight. What would be the approach? What would you recommend? How, how to deal with the issue? Well, I think anything in teenagers is a dicey issue. So I wouldn't get into finger pointing. I wouldn't say eat this versus eat that. Like most teenagers, they're likely to do the opposite of what mom or dad might suggest. But I think a simple thing that I wouldn't even talk about much is just changing the environment at home in two respects. So when your teenager goes to the pantry or the cupboard to get something, make sure that there's a, a wide range of healthy options there. It doesn't mean there can't be, there has to be zero unhealthy options. But if the ratio is 80-20 now, change it to maybe 50-50 or 60-40 or 80-20 the other direction. And the other thing is to, and this sounds old-fashioned, but practice what you preach. It's very tough for parents to say, don't watch as much TV, don't eat as much high-fat foods, if in fact that's what the parents are modeling. And the modeling is ever important. Speaking about modeling going to schools, are schools adequately teaching good practices you know, schools, we do a lot of work in schools, uh, both in Philadelphia and across the country, and I think they have a really difficult job. There are lots of pressures to have their students get passing test scores on standardized tests. And so if you were going to pick a spot where you would augment the curriculum, you probably wouldn't pick nutrition. You'd probably pick math or science. I think what schools are increasingly starting to do is to start to innovate their curriculum with facts and figures about nutrition, about agriculture, about physical activity, about energy expenditure. But I think where schools can have their biggest benefit is similar to parents is to change the environment. So if we could change the school lunch program, if we could change the degree to which high calorie beverages and snacks are sold in vending machines, if we could change the fact that we have candies as the principal means of fundraising for most schools, those kind of things I think could make a difference rather than trying to infringe on the already packed curriculum. And it goes to the old expression that hard work pays off. It takes some discipline to put oneself on a good diet and change one's environment. It truly does. It does. It's about discipline, but it's about skill power, not just willpower. So the fundamental reality, which is unfair, is the people who eat the same and exercise the same don't weigh the same. So there's a lot of biological variability that people literally bring to the table. Having said that, no matter what your biological predisposition, you can alter your body weight by eating less and moving more. But don't assume this is a fair fight. It's not. People who eat the same and exercise the same don't weigh the same. And, you know, that brings up a very interesting point from a, an emotional point of view because if someone is so biologically predisposed to, to be heavier and they go on these diets and they try everything and it just doesn't work, they'll feel defeated. That's exactly right. And, again, it's not that the diets do anything bad metabolically to people or if you yo-yo diet, somehow your metabolic rate gets compromised. But it can leave sort of this legacy of failure with folks where they start to think it's not worth it. And I think it's back to your earlier point of trying to make small changes. Think about this as a long haul, as a marathon, really a never-ending marathon rather than a short sprint. And if you can think about small ways that you could shift energy balance by 100, 200, 300 calories a day, 
that's likely going to be more sustainable than saying I'm going to eat 800 calories tomorrow and do that for 12 weeks and lose 20 pounds. So it's a very multifaceted set of interventions that are very important because we are looking at not only just the presence of, of being obese, but what's going to be like in a number of years. I heard the other day, and I, I can't confirm it, but I heard that there was an increasing number of orthopedic problems because kids were weighing more and they were having more problems with their knees. And it, you know, it makes sense. It certainly makes one think in that direction. I don't know the specific data, but I can't think of an organ system in the body that obesity doesn't adversely affect. So if you want to look at particularly childhood conditions, adult conditions, it doesn't make a lot of difference. As obesity decreases, things like sleep apnea, osteoarthritis, asthma in kids, I mean, it just goes on and on. Diabetes we've already talked about. It's not a pretty picture. I also read that there's concern from the CDC about morbid obesity being a risk factor in H1N1 flu-related complications. Yeah, I think those were some of the early signals. I haven't seen the more recent data, but the mechanism of that is pretty unclear at this point. But yeah, it's, it's almost like piling on one more thing that obesity may, may make worse. It really reverberates through the person's life. Right, and it is controllable. I think it's to what degree and what expectations folks have. We and others have collected data saying that people have just unrealistic standards for how much weight they want to lose in a typical weight loss program or even in a surgery program. So I think if people could shoot for a 5 to 10% reduction in their body weight, which is if you're 250 pounds, doesn't seem like much, but it has significant medical improvements. And then work on maintaining that before deciding to lose more might be a better strategy than saying, I'm just going to lose as much weight until I get exhausted and then start to regain the weight. So that brings up to us, uh, brings us up to a very interesting point, and that is where does one get good information? There must be hundreds of books in the bookstores on how to lose weight, hundreds. And and with all the websites and everything else, goodness knows, where does someone go to get realistic um, information? Does your center have a website that people can visit? Are there other organizations that are that are good, solid, conservative information bases? Yeah, I think the best website is by the NIH. And if you just go to the NIH and search on obesity, there's a practical guidelines for the treatment of overweight and obesity, which was written for professionals. But there's also a multitude of patient handouts about simple things to do, ways to track your intake, tips and strategies. And they're also very ethnically diverse. So there are handouts for Latinos, for African-Americans, for Native Americans, and it's actually uh, quite exceptional. This is very key information. Uh, Dr. Gary Foster is a professor of medicine and public health at Temple University. He is also director for the Center for Obesity Research and Education. Sir, thank you so much. I find this intriguing and incredibly important to the people in our society. Have a good day, sir. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks.